0: Welcome back to the Fifth Estate Podcast from the Wheeler Centre. For this episode, we've done something unusual. This conversation comes to you from in front of a dinner audience at Montalto Vineyard and Olive Grove in Red Hill, about an hour outside Melbourne. Journalist David Marr joins our host, Sally Warhaft.
1: We're here tonight to talk about uh, David's most recent quarterly essay, The White Queen, One Nation, and the Politics of race and uh i want to begin with the good news david and that is that according to you we're not uh, that is australia is not in the midst of a populist revolution as we've seen in england and in america and in fact you you start the essay and i think it's a great Uh, image to start this conversation with Pauline Hanson on the lawns of Parliament House the day Trump or the day after Trump was elected popping champagne and my reading of that is that that was just a very big con with her trying to hitch a ride onto something you say she really has very little to do with.
2: Exactly. I mean, the patterns are here. The patterns of the Trump voters and the Hanson voters are clearly similar. But the numbers aren't, because we live in a better country. This is, this is a better country. We are in better shape. We are not driven by the hatreds and rages of Europe and America. And therefore, instead of her attracting the 34% that Marine Le Pen got the other day in the French runoff elections, she gets 10%. And that matters. The numbers matter. And the deference that was being shown to her at the time of her election and in the months immediately afterwards, and we'll talk later, I think, about how things have shifted in the time since, But the deference that was being shown to her at the time of her election and the months immediately afterwards was ludicrously out of kilter. And for her to stand that afternoon in front of Parliament House in Canberra and see herself as the local representative of a world revolution was just risible, (laughs) but it was fun. Um, It's great footage because there's one of those rippling grey storms coming over Parliament House... (laughs) And, and if I could still remember these things, I could tell you the name of the shape of those clouds. My friends tell me I'm very good at weather retrospectives rather than <laughs> weather forecasts. But, but So there's this, cloud, there's this storm coming over. She's beside herself with, a, with, with um, excitement. And I noticed that in the clip, she's very carefully hiding the brand of the champagne that she's drinking. So I got on to my colleagues in Parliament and I said... Did anybody there see the label? Anyway, word went around, word went around the, 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 um, the, the journal of the, the, the press gallery in Canberra, and, and word came back from, from somebody from, from Fairfax who said to me, "Yes, I did glimpse it for a moment. It was black pig." <laughs> so I was able to throw that detail into the. The work we do to be authentic never ends. I'm sorry, Sally, you had a question. Well, no) <laughs>
1: I've got one or two. All oh, right, And okay. we have an hour, so that's going to yep. be about right. I um <laughs> I I've got a problem with the numbers and it's this. It's a key, there's there's several differences and we'll get into them with with religion, you know, is an obvious difference between Australia and the United States, but the biggest one I think is compulsory voting. And I think if you took compulsory voting away from Australia, which inherently attracts the middle. If you have to turn up and vote, you're probably going to vote in the middle, whereas in the United States, it attracts the edges. And I think if we didn't have that, Pauline Hanson uh, would be getting a hell of a lot more of that vote. And I think the numbers you use in this essay support that.
2: No, I don't agree. Because what we have here in australia it's a habit of uh, it's a habit of voting i mean the the, the the fine is tiny. You know, this is... We, we live in a society that believes in turning out for what I think to be the most beautiful civic ceremony of our lives, which is every few years we go to the local kindergarten and we vote. It was a little alarming for me this year. I do live, I have to admit, in the inner west of Sydney and there was a woman next to me with a live ferret on her neck. But um, I said, is that a ferret? She said, yes, it was a ferret, as if it was, you know, you know silly to ask. But um, but it is it is... It is a wonderful moment, I think, in all of our lives. Every few years, when we vote, I agree. Which, and I know this. I is... love it. I pick the long queue. <laughs> And I know this is going off on a bit of a tangent, but one of the reasons why I think that the Republic argument drops dead in Australia, because the people who are promoting the Republic do not understand that the one thing that would galvanise Australians to support a Republic is the notion that every few years we would turn out and vote for our president. That's the key gesture. That's the key act of of that. But anyway, um, because we all turn out... Therefore, the voting numbers are a true expression of the sentiment of the society. And, and Pauline Hansen gets 10%. That's the true measure. Now, in the United States, what happened, amongst many other things in the election last year, is that Trump galvanised a cohort of white working-class voters who previously had not voted or had voted for Obama, and they came over to him. And as with Pauline Hansen, they were not the poor. Now, we'll probably talk about this a bit, but they were not the poor. We are protected in Australia from extremism by having compulsory voting. But it doesn't shift or distort the pattern of our community sentiments, in fact, it reveals it more clearly.
1: Well, the numbers that you use uh, suggest, and you know, I guess this could be a glass half empty, half full, and I'm half empty on this because you, you're, you're, you're so optimistic about Australia and Australians, and you use the figures that only 25% of Australians are bigoted. <laughs> um, well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I find that that's 25% who are admitting it. Well, I think
2: I think probably the real measure of the of the race bigots in Australia is about 15%, and the and those who are disturbed by race, um, particularly by the presence of Muslims in Australia, is about another 10%, which brings it up to 25%. Now that is a challenging number, and I'm not I'm not. I know I've been accused of optimism with this essay, but what I'm trying to argue is this. We are a better country than our politics suggests, and that the core of this country and the majority of this country is decent, open, accepting, and tolerant. We are, in fact, a wonderful country on all of those measures. But there is something about our politics... Which I examine in the essay that plays to that fifteen percent, and it 's not nothing I mean to have ten percent of Australians voting for you is not nothing that gives you extraordinary leverage in our political system because of the the system we have of 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 um, preference voting, but nevertheless, my argument is on all of the measures that year after year the wonderful teams from the Scanlon surveys bring us, and I love those figures, they show us to be a terrific country, and yet our politics year after year is playing to the most awful right-wing end of the political spectrum. And And, and And my argument is, in this essay that we need to look at those numbers and demand better of our politicians.
1: Now, they're playing to those numbers because they congregate in seats that decide elections. Is it that simple?
2: Well, all seats decide elections. Well,
1: marginal seats in Australia decide elections. I think
2: it's a little bit more fundamental than that. You cannot govern in Australia without a cohort of the working class voting for you. And therefore... The, um, if you are wanting to run a liberal government, you need a cohort of, of 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 the working class voting for you, and that's fine. Everybody understands that. And the mission of the the mission of the of the um, of the Murdoch press is to enlist um, as many of the of the of the working class as possible to vote Tory, and that's always been. That's the historic mission of the Yellow Press is to make the, is to convince the working class that it's in their interests to vote Tory. Um, and, and, of course, <laughs> Labor needs a fair cohort of the working class to, to, to govern in this country as well. So there is a contest for these votes. And the other thing is about these votes is that they are mobile. Now, the Greens, God bless them. God bless, protect, and promote them. They, they vote Green, and they automatically vote. Their second vote is for the Labor Party. So they can be ignored. They can be absolutely ignored. They completely reliably come back to the Labour Party. But the thing about Pauline Hanson is that she is a recruiter for the notion of rebellion. And if voters leave the Liberal Party or more often the National Party, occasionally the Labour Party, and vote for her, instead of going back where they came from with their second vote, they move on. About half of them move on And vote, and vote for another party, and it is her capacity to split off votes that gives her her particular clout in politics. I'm not sure that that's where we began with this question, but it's where we end up.
1: It's lovely, isn't it? John
2: Howard said, "Politics is 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 only about the laws of arithmetic." and as so many of the things he's said in his life, it's both completely true and absolutely false at the same time. Um, but the arithmetic of the arithmetic of Pauline Hansen is
1: fascinating. Let's talk about that 10 percent uh, 9, 10, eight that, that is voting for her, who, are, who these people are because you've done uh, quite detailed research, and there are some surprising They're not what
2: they're said to be. They're
1: not. uh, There are a lot of young people that are voting for Pauline Hanson. Yep.
2: Nearly half the voters for Pauline Hanson in 2016 were under the age of 44. Those people who think that One Nation voters are an old bunch of white codgers who are dying out... um, It's only half of them. It's only half of them. (laughs) And... Coming up behind is a cohort of younger voters, also white, of course. They're the white children of white parents and white grandparents, um, all Australian,
1: um, but they're not dying out. And to get back to the first thing that we talked about, about these differences between America, that the Trump voters, so many of the Trump voters, it was clearly a disenfranchised group, a large part of it, from the global financial crisis... Whereas in Australia... Mm. Yeah. I'll I'll put it out there and then you can groan.
2: I groan too soon.
1: You groan too soon. I do it all the time. Mm. I'm sorry. Mm. It's a different economic... These are not people that are... These are, uh, you know, as Pauline Hanson would say, or Bill Shorten or Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd, or Julia Gillard, hard-working Australians...
2: Yes, but they're not poor. And it's much too easy for us and it goes to the kind of decent, logical aspect of us that we think that the most obvious explanation for a disenchanted cohort of our society is that they're having it tough financially. Um, It's a great... It's a great problem with left-wingers. Now, of course, you know that I'm deeply affectionate to the, nearly every aspect of the left-wing, um, except their manners. Um, and, and the automatic assumption of so many people in Australia, right across the spectrum, to drop jokes about the left and the right-wing, is that if you have a troubled cohort, the troubles are economic, but the thing about One Nation voters and the thing about Trump voters is that the problems that, that that what that what disturbs them is much richer and more interesting than that. And in fact, for instance, in the United States of America, there's very, very good analysis of the vote, which was published in the Atlantic magazine earlier this month. It's really worth reading. And what it shows is that obviously Trump's vote is a is a white working class vote. But the Poor white working class voted for Hillary, and it's the prosperous white working class that voted for Trump. And when you look at the figures that I've got in there from the Australian Election Study, with these gorgeous, gorgeous figures, and it's a small sample, but if you're very careful with it, you can find you can it's a it's a window into the world of one nation. Is that these people have not just been sacked? from a production line in a company being ruined by globalisation. They are not unemployed. They loathe dull bludgers. They loathe people who are on employment benefit. They are moderately prosperous. They're very gloomy about the future and they loathe immigration and they dis- really, really dislike government, but they're not poor. They're not poor. And, and their problems with Australia are much, much more interesting than that. They just do not like today. They don't like today. A great friend of mine has done a lot of focus groups with One Nation, or or would be One Nation voters, in Queensland. Now, I know Queensland is another country, but I think (laughs) you can say things about Queensland that mean things for the rest of Australia. And what she tells me, this is Rebecca Huntley, who's who's somebody, I think, whose work some of you will know. She's wonderful. And Rebecca says that the thing that strikes her is the nostalgia of these people, of the One Nation voters. And, and while many, many voters talk nostalgically about Australia that is no longer around anymore, and I have a bit of a habit of doing it myself, I tell you, the North Shore of Sydney when I was a child was a paradise <laughs> from which we have all been expelled. But most Australians, when they're confronted with the reality say, oh, God, I wouldn't want to go back there. I mean, I loved it, but I wouldn't want, One Nation want to... One Nation voters want to go back there. They're not quite clear what that there is. It's a kind of compilation of their childhood and an, and an imagined childhood of their parents. Though. This it's is a group it's not of not people that are
1: pro-euthanasia, pro-medicinal cannabis, uh, um, really pro-death penalty. In fact, they're quite pro-killing. Oh, they're pro-killing, uh, but... But we are completely wrong
2: to imagine that euthanasia and and the decriminalisation, particularly of medical marijuana, is a progressive cause. It isn't. It's a cause that nearly every Australian agrees with. And they do too. And they're not particularly perturbed by equal marriage. I mean, again, Rebecca's Rebecca's, um, focus groups say, why don't they just get on with it? Um, And the notion that progressive politics in Australia should come to a screaming halt because of the challenge of one nation, is risible. It's just another excuse. I mean, there are no end of excuses for, for progressive politics in this country coming to a screaming halt. And she's just the latest of them. But um, they're not. I mean, they do love punishment, it's true. They love a hanging. Mm. Um, and it's part of the meanness. Mm. Um, and I think I can talk candidly in a group like this tonight, that, that <laughs> there is a mean streak in the, Australian, in the Australian character, which we don't pay much attention to, but she leads the mean streak, and there is about her this mean, why should we spend money on that? Why should we spend money on them? Why should we waste ourselves looking after them? And that meanness um, is quite attractive to a cohort of Australians, and she's the Queen of Mean. Um, it had to be pointed out to me that, of course, the White Queen is the goody in <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. It's the Red Queen, really, who's the problem. <laughs> and maybe the title might have been the Queen of Mean. But, but there is a kind of meanness. It's a meanness that, of course, is taken up by the Liberal Party. It's taken up by the National Party ex- exuberantly at times. Um, it's taken up by the, Liberal, the Labor Party. does a pretty good line of mean as well. Um, but she's the queen of mean. And that's, and that's where she comes from. They're not poor, but they are mean.
1: The, the great unifying sentiment is, of course, uh, anti-immigration, specifically anti-Muslim, and uh, especially a black Muslim. Uh, this, the, the darker the colour of your skin... The uh, more Muslim, somehow, in the eyes of this cohort, you are. Well, the, that fabulous moment when when Pauline Hansen was on Q and A
2: with Sam Dastyari. <laughs> I, you're not really, really. You're a Muslim, really. I mean, she's, yeah.
1: Now, I mean, <laughs> it's it's hard to know. Um, and and in fact you know you'd have to do a more you know you be more detailed kind of ethnographic study i suppose to know what is racist what is anti islam which is a a religious uh bigotry and what is and i've always suspected this is is a bigger part of it just other it's just the new mm. other it was Vietnamese and before that it was Greeks and Italians and this is the new other and that that tapping into nostalgia is just leave us alone we don't want anyone else coming in I mean
2: racism is such a, a diverse and interesting beast because it's all of those things I mean it can be a passionate distaste for a particular race. It can be, yes, just a wish that Australia could be a simpler, cleaner, whiter place than it's becoming it can be It can be Joan Sutherland complaining that she has to fill in her renewal for her passport and hand it to an Indian lass at the post office. Remember that mm, moment mm. a few years it can be it can be mild, it can be mild disturbance it can be. Furious rage, I mean both of us at the moment are reading john safran's book about which is called you know um, depends what you call an extremist depends what you mean by extremist um, and he explores the worlds of of great extremes um, but it can be all of these things, and yes, she's always dealing with today's worry now a lot of the a lot of the talk about Hansen is to say that when she was here the first time, 20 years ago, she was saying Australia is about to be overrun by Asians. And she did say that, and it made her briefly the most famous Australian in the world. Um, and, and But that wasn't really her beef back then. Her beef really back then was that, that Aboriginal Australians were being indulged. Um, that was her big beef back then. It was the locals. Now it's Muslims. And the kind of disgust that she inspired back then, the kind of disgust that made Jeff Kennett tell John Howard that there's no way in the world that the Victorian Liberal Party would be part of a preference deal with One Nation that put her ahead of any other party, that in, in Victoria, at least, One Nation would come last. And Jeff Kennett was an important part of making Howard see sense in 1998 when he wanted to give preferences federally to One Nation. Come on, 20 years, and Jeff Kennett is telling me that One Nation is so different now. Oh, yes, no, we've got to do preference deals with them now. And because it is not as disgusting for Australians to be putting the boot into Muslims as it was 20 years ago to be putting the boot into Asians and Aborigines. So, So now we are in a different political world because Obviously because of terrorism and obviously because of the fear of Islam that the terrorism promotes in the in the community but that that has absolutely that has changed but racism is so it's such a fugitive strange difficult thing to deal with and every one of us in this room has some part of it in themselves some part of it but we need to be you know obviously we we need to be alert to it and and to see it being to see it being actually um, exploited politically um, is is disturbing for me and for many people and that's why I wrote that essay to to show the ways in which it's being exploited
1: when you say that Australia is better than our politics and our political culture what uh, uh You know, could realistically change, do you think now? I mean, Malcolm Turnbull's opened the door last year, double dissolution election, the simplification of the Senate, these are the things that were uh, the invitation to Pauline Hanson back in, and and it worked. Um, How do you think he would feel about that? And does Malcolm Turnbull have identifiable feelings that are his own? (laughs) Did I suppose so. Did I say Malcolm Fraser or Turnbull? Turnbull. Oh, good. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but, look, two things.
2: What we need to understand is that Pauline Hanson never left us. She doesn't create. She doesn't create her constituency, but she musters it. She never left us. She lost office. The I mean, she, she has been, to an astonishing number of times in her career, the victim of, of redistributions. She lost, well, her, she was, she lost she, her seat on the Ipswich City Council because of a redistribution. <laughs> and then she lost, Ox, then she lost her, her, her parliamentary seat because of a redistribution. But she also was kept out of power by an understanding between the major parties that they would preference her last. What I discovered in the course of writing the essay is that the preference whisperer that guy who astonishingly brings together tiny little parcels of votes and get people elected whose only wish in life is to shoot ducks, for instance, (laughs) um, or make life appalling for pufters. You know, no, important things. But, um, But he, the preference whisperer, was also mustering votes to keep her out of parliament. And this had worked for 20 years. Time and again, she got so close to being elected, either to the Senate or to the New South Wales Legislative Council or to the Queensland Parliament, time and again. But she never got the ordinary preference flows that somebody in her position would get. She was always robbed of the preferences. She was kept out.
1: Which is profoundly undemocratic.
2: Profoundly, well, yes. And, and, and I think there can't be a person in this room who regrets the fact that the voting rules for the Senate were changed last year so that the Whisperer couldn't any longer have that power. He couldn't get his tiny micro-candidates up. He couldn't keep Pauline out. But what gave her the power she has in the Senate is Malcolm Turnbull's ludicrous decision to go to a double dissolution because he thought he could put the boot into Labor over a oh no it was for that age
1: you'll see was AM, it again yeah, yeah. the uh the a b, b c, c d e i mean i get lost it might have been the lgbti yeah, it F, might have been the
2: acbqt in the alphabet something like that anyway he had a chunk of the alphabet in his mind and he was going to use it against labor but he completely failed to it was completely inept i mean I'm the last person on earth to defend the thuggery of the builders' labourers, but but he just failed. But what it did was open the door, and it, and Pauline Hanson is, you know, she has a cohort. She nearly won in... She was 150 votes short of getting a senator up in Tasmania. God, don't you love Tasmania? It's, <laughs> it's essentially a suburb of Victoria, and it has 10 senators. Um, anyway, sorry, it's the, it's the federal compact. I know it's too late to complain about it, but... Sometimes you do wonder, you know. Uh, King Island wants to become part of Victoria, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> but what if Tasmania wanted to become part of Victoria? <laughs> Think
2: how sane politics might be in this country.
1: Or we just knock down or another it, crossing and build another bridge. And
2: actually, if Queensland could become part of Victoria, I mean, Queensland's the problem. Queensland's the problem. I know you're quite right to object. It's a silly idea, but. One of the things that marks the followers of One Nation is that they, most of them haven't finished school. And that's... No, it's not a matter of laughter. I'm sorry. It's a very serious issue. Education, education, education. If you want to fix up, poli- the- if you want to fix up politics in any country, you invest in education. And that is the link to the states and it is the link that's to the Brexit. Main link. Yeah, that's right. the main link. That's the main link. It's, it's when you look at the followers... When you look at the people who ludicrously are taking Britain out of Europe, and if you look to the people who voted for Trump, and if you look to the people who voted for, for Pauline Hanson, the thing they most share is they didn't finish school. And in Queensland, of course, more people didn't finish school than in any other state in Australia, because Queensland had the notion that if you educated, too mi- if you educated people too much, they wouldn't vote for you. And so children in Queensland used to go into school late and out early. And, and, I mean, it's just terrible. Pauline Hanson herself left school at 15, her parents left school at 15, and the, and the voters for One Nation left school before they finished. They made things of their lives. They got tertiary qualifications, they became tradespeople, they worked hard, they had, they, they had good jobs, but they left school early. They never experienced a
1: day on a campus um, they never had that experience. And of course, and this is something you you touch on in the essay, but I'd love more on this, uh, the, the, the language of politics, how it's changed. Uh-huh. And so it's the elites, of course, who are the cause of all problems, according to the Pauline Hanson One Nation set. And Elites, you know, when I was a little girl, elites were the guys that were members of the Melbourne Club. That's what an elite was.
0: Now, How wrong you were.
1: Well, now it's us, you know. Now it's going to a winery on a Friday night and listening to David Ma talk about the uneducated <laughs> Queenslanders. Shows.
2: I love this language, and I've, there's a section of the essay which is an examination of this language. And what it is, um, is sledging. It's just sledging, but it's beautifully constructed sledging. It's beautifully constructed sledging. It comes out of America, and its purpose is the same here as it is there, which is to pursue completely disreputable causes but to find fresh language in which to do it. And in particular, in the United States of America, is to pursue the cause of keeping blacks down, and that's the primary—that is—that is one of the primary um, uh, motivators of a section of conservative politics in the United States, keeping blacks down. But you can't talk like that anymore. So what you do is you talk about political correctness, and you talk about—and you talk about elites
1: now. And culture
2: wars. Ah, the culture war. Don't you? God, don't you love the culture war? It's kind of the First World War um, with the IPA in one set of, in one set of, uh, of trenches and nobody in the other <laughs> set of trenches because they're so bored. But the IPA is still firing their three oh threes into the distance, um, or Bren guns, to... to armaments that I can actually fire and strip if you need the... the, But, But the culture war stuff. But the elites is fabulous, isn't it? The elites. We can be sitting around a table where everyone around the table has been to the same schools. They've had roughly the same careers. They live roughly in the same suburbs and their incomes aren't terribly different. But if one set has kind of lefty views, they're elites... But if the other set doesn't, if the other side of the table doesn't, then they are, they are decent Australian citizens on the side of mainstream virtues, listening to the kind of people that Pauline Hanson represents and making sure that progressive causes drop dead. And that's the only difference between them. The only difference between these people is their, are their political views. And yet one set is elites and the other set are are these fabulously uh, alert and moral Australian citizens. I mean, I'm a great reader of of the Australian newspaper, who can't be? Um, Apart from anything, it's actually a newspaper that fabulously reports what's going on Mm. across Australia. Um, But when you look at their list of enemies, their enemies are progressive elites who are well-educated with moral views. Now, if they are your enemies, who are your friends? It's just extraordinary. It's just... And, and, and it's just sledging. It's just sledging. It's just a way of avoiding dealing with the actual issues in
1: front of us all. It's just a way of sledging the participants. So, with your very optimistic and positive <laughs> sense of Australia, if we took all the politicians out and we put the IPA on people on boats and push them in the other direction and if we just got rid of all these troublemakers and we're just left with the people you you think this country would be better than it feels at the moment I'm not wildly
2: optimistic my argument is that we're a better country than we think we are and we can have a better
1: politics than we have see i i think, not think we're not as good optimistic. as we think we are i think we're a bit up ourselves and i think you oh, know we're up you, ourselves, no particularly but who no particularly particularly with the multiculturality, we think, and I, honest to God, if I hear one more politician or newspaper editor say out loud again, "Nobody does multiculturalism as well as Australia," I think I will be sick, because there are lots of countries that do it really well, mm. really, really well, and why do we continually have to be told that we do it the best? Because.
2: There is a cohort of voters, 15 to 25 percent of them, very, very useful political real estate if you can seize their loyalties, who are furious that these people are here, and they do need to be reminded that we may not be the best on earth at this,
1: but we're bloody good. So is that the politicians just going too far? You know, in that sort of overstretch, overreaching? That's not my. That's not my argument. My
2: argument is that politicians have a choice about competing for certain sections, for competing for the votes of certain sections of the community. And I do not think they should be fighting so hard to get the votes of a tiny fraction of the far right in this country. I mean, I adore Corey Bernardi for what he's doing. I mean, it is not everybody who would venture their political careers on two of the least popular causes in <laughs> Australia. Small government. This is a country that adores big government. We want things from government. We have a view of government that it is there to serve Australian people, that has a purpose. It's got to do things for us. We believe in big government. Tory Bernardi... Cory Bernardi... <laughs> <laughs> That was not a slip of the tongue. It was a really, really clever joke. (laughs) And I'm glad some of you caught it. Corey Bernardi stands for small government and anti-abortion. And that's it. And he presumes to be setting up something called the Australian Conservatives. It's fabulous. There's this... There is just a dogfight going on on the right in Australia for these votes. And my argument is... And it would seem from the budget that Malcolm Turnbull has just brought down that I'm not completely off the beam here. My argument is that the contest for those votes is deeply unpopular and is part of the general dissatisfaction with our politicians that Australians are now showing. Australians want to come back to the centre. And the problem with Pauline Hanson, what makes her so fascinating, is that she is such a charismatic figure on the far right
1: and she needs to be dealt with. Let's talk briefly about her charisma because uh, I, I want to know if you think she is the Bob Brown of her party in the sense that he I've was... I just have this extraordinary notion of
2: she, <laughs> of her getting together with Bob Brown. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I, I'm sorry, Sally. It depends on what you mean by getting together, of course, David. But I'm sure that uh, Bob would sit down and talk with her, unlike other politicians that have expressed that that they wouldn't. But th- the point I want to make is that Bob Brown, of course, was the Greens for such a long time, and yeah. when when he left, there was a big question about whether or not they had the sort of infrastructure. Uh, and the culture to, to keep going, and they have been able to do that. Can there be a One Nation Party without her, or is no. the affection and the charisma essential? No, 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 no. Because there's is, a big affection, isn't there, for her?
2: There is affection and there's forgiveness. There's an extraordinary element of forgiveness, and it's actually in the Australian community quite generally. Um, but, But... There is no party without her, and that was proved because she left the party in about 2001, didn't return to it until 2013, and in that decade, the party went nowhere. There are bits of One Nation all over Australia, and they kind of float freely. and They're like space junk, and they occasionally collide. And at the moment, she's trying to bring some of them back together again, but without her, there's no party. With her, um, and she alone doesn't quite work, she and One Nation is the brand, together. And when they got back together again, she was on the way back. But, but her problem is that there's no movement. Now, Bob Brown had a movement behind him. There was something called the Greens. There were overseas examples. There was a Greens party in Germany. There were Greens parties elsewhere. And there was, and there was a big cause, which was stopping, stopping rivers in Tasmania being dammed. And, and so, therefore, there was a body of people with like minds... Pauline, Pauline Hanson's continuing problem, same then as now, is that she's got to find people to put into parliament, and the kinds of people who want to be One Nation candidates are often um, nut jobs. And, and I mean, and I'm, I use that in its technical sense because and she's lost so far five of her candidates who are about to stand for election in Queensland. In Queensland, she's not Mrs. Ten Percent. She's, of course, Mrs. 20%, and that's Queensland's problem, but it's Australia's problem as well. But she keeps losing these people. I mean, one of, them, one of them was this fabulous guy who, as a police officer, was part of an operation to seize young Aboriginal kids in Fortitude Valley in Queensland and drop them off in the bush. Now they were charged with kidnapping, quite rightly. But oddly enough, the judge discovered that the children were perfectly willing to be seized and dropped off in the bush, about 20 kilometres from town, with no money. Um, so luckily, the kidnapping charges were dropped. This guy, this guy—I mean, the Twitter sphere on this guy is so blissful, and people attacking him, attacking him. I don't want to talk about my career years ago, um, he said to one of the people who was tweeting him, I want to talk about my policies now. And somebody immediately replied, what's your policy on kidnapping? (laughs) (laughs) But she's got these nutters. I mean, some of them are really horrible. The Bendigo woman here, who was a Bendigo councillor, who was um, sending around close-up photographs of genital mutilation, female genital mutilation, to people who were defending the notion of building a mosque in Bendigo. She left. And I mean I mean various people leave. But one of her one of Hansen's great weaknesses is that she is the party. She is the charismatic party. And she has to find candidates. She has to find an organization that will back her. And this is as 20 years ago, is spectacularly troubled. Though I don't know whether you saw the four corners, but I have a sneaking sympathy for Pauline and even for that terrible Ashby guy who works for her about sacking that elderly couple who were running One Nation in Western Australia because, sweet as they were, um, I don't think that they were up to it. Um, anyway, anyway, as you know... and. I think the story on Pauline Hanson has shifted since the essay appeared. That the story now is not about her inexorable rise to transform Australian politics, but it's much more about the internal dynamics of her own
1: part of her own movement. Um, it's not that hard, of course, to put the boot into her candidates, and it's. Easy. But it's a pleasure. I know, and and you do it so eloquently and charmingly. But we've
2: also restraint.
1: But I mean, hardly David. I'm seeing little restraint. Don't restrain yourself here. It's like you said, we're we're elites. We can handle it. And we're evil,
2: and we can talk about
1: these things well, uninhibitedly. What I want to say is that, of course, the disenchantment that one nation supporters. Have with Australian politics is real. And it's not theirs alone. No. I share that. That is the one thing that I am absolutely right there with them. And I think it's something like 75% of Australians who also share that. God knows that 25% that don't are just as mysterious as the 25% that hate Muslims. It's, uh, it's, it's inexplicable Absolutely. how you could actually be satisfied with her, Australian political culture right her now. Her followers
2: are Australians. They are part of the political process. They have a right to a voice, and they, and their needs, as far as possible, have to be addressed. There is There is no... I, I, I hope you don't, don't misunderstand me. There is no sense in which I am saying they can be ignored or they can be simply ridiculed. Now, if there's a good joke, I'm going to crack it. But, but their their um, anger is real. Their anger and their anger is profound. It's really, really interesting to see the contrast between voters for the Nationals and voters for One Nation, because in many, many ways they're identical. In many ways, well, not identical, but they're very, very similar. Um, but the great difference between them is the nationals love the Australian democratic process. And why wouldn't you? Their vote is not much bigger than the One Nation vote. They've got a deputy prime minister, they've got a squad of, of senators in, 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 the, in the parliament, um, and, they, and they run the government in some respects. Whereas with the same vote, the One Nation... Not quite the same vote. The One Nation voters get nothing... And so they're furious with the democratic process in Australia. Australia fell out of love with its political leaders in 2010 when we saw through Kevin Rudd. Australia fell in love with the idea of Kevin Rudd in 2006, 2007, he was elected in that Amazing landslide.
1: Or alternatively, when Julie Gillard took a job off him that was rightfully his. Well, it, it, you know, I mean, it, it's it's that's that's not a. Uh, yeah, I was
2: very I was very perturbed the other night to be talking to one of Rudd's staff who said to me that my essay on Rudd was the full stop at the end of a very long sentence. <laughs> um, which had led to his downfall because I think the sacking yeah. of Rudd sacking of Rudd was a political catastrophe for the labor party it was actually a political catastrophe for the political system yeah. as well yeah. but australia fell out of love with its political leaders in 2010 and has never recovered we used to be amongst the nations with the highest regard for our political leaders we were up there with scandinavia but we're not anymore we fell out of love in 2010 and and the the resurgence of hope and the resurgence of affection for political leaders, which is the usual outcome of every election, particularly when an election sees a change of government, has never happened mm. since 2010. So Tony Abbott was elected, but there was no sense of hope behind that. It was inevitable, but it was not hopeful. And, and there was, that, of course, that fascinating few weeks when the whole of Australia projected its hopes onto mm. Malcolm Turnbull. Um, And those hopes died away. But we are still there bumping along on a low level of trust. And Hanson's voters are those voters who loathe government and loathe immigration. It's the cohort of government loathers
1: who are most perturbed about race and immigration. Um, We're going to go to some questions in the audience. If you'd like to ask uh, David something, put your hand up and the gentleman here? Half tick, there's a mic. Wait for the mic, we're going to record it. The mic gives you real authority.
3: <laughs> Thank you. I'm pretty sure you said uh, Pauling Hanson needs to be dealt with as I think we, we all... It's a uh, terrible heard.
2: expression, I so regret uh, using it from time could you, to time. Could you,
3: could you tell me how you would deal with it?
2: Well... The argument of my essay is that we cannot get anywhere with Pauline Hanson unless the major political parties in this country and their leaders candidly admit the race animus that drives her party. They have to say, they have to admit and to analyse that she is the race-hating section of the far right. And that is a necessary first step. When I was writing the essay... I was particularly disdainful of those professional political um, uh, advisers who were saying, "Look, David." Um, The Labor Party can't possibly say that kind of thing because a lot of our members are quite attracted to Pauline Hanson's point of view. And if you call her a racist, they'll see that as a criticism of themselves and they'll just blame the elites for that kind of thing and they'll... And therefore, what we're doing, David, you've got to understand, is our approach is just show she's another politician. Now, I was very snotty about that when I was writing the essay but I'm watching, it in, I'm watching it in operation now. Both parties, both sides of politics are doing it. Um, so instead of contesting her views, they're contesting her, her modus operandi, and it's devastating. It's doing her great harm. I still argue that for all of us it is necessary to face the truth of what drives of, of what drives people to join her. There are lots of other right-wing organisations, like Cory Bernardi's and various other ones. They're popping up all the time. But, but what drives her is the race vote. And we need to say it. We need to say it in order that we can deal with it in our own community. And we can deal with it. We need to say... She's not a Trump, she's not a Brexit, she's not a Marine Le Pen, she's this size. She's ours, she comes from our community, and we need to see in her aspects of this country that need to be faced and dealt with.
3: David, um, or Sally as well, the the sort of extremism, the, the cynicism and so on that's coming through with politics, you know, the sledging and populism and extremism. How much do you think it's the loss of faith in the media and the media's rolling this, you know, where now, you know, bold faced lies and fake news and all the rest of it has almost become tolerated? Um, how much is that as a as a cause or effect of this? you know, fairly disturbing political situation that we see here now. And also international.
1: It's all my that fault. That was asked for both of us. Yes so it got was. It. Well I think uh, I think it's I think the media is as disappointing as political culture. That's what I think. They mirror each other to me. And uh, I think that the What's happened with fake news, the damage that Trump is doing in the United States with legitimising fake news is a, a sort of terrifying part of his presidency, that even if he was to be removed tomorrow, I don't know how you undo that. Um, as to the state of Australian media, I find pretty much all of it unreadable, I have to say. I'm quite disengaged from... Uh, Australian media i 'm disengaged from listening to it and consuming it. I have two year old twins, and my time I no longer can sit around listening to you know John Fain every morning and uh, listen to the world today every afternoon i 'm much more discerning in my and uh, I just go overseas. I have to say, I think the Australian media, but it's gutted. It's absolutely gutted. Look what's happened at Fairfax. Look at uh, the Australian has still got some really fine, world-class journalists. But so is the, so is Fairfax. So is Fairfax. Look, oh, I used to, like I, used to write,
2: I used to write for her. Let me tell you, her standards are are shamelessly high. They are, and they're brutally high. Mm. And and she's expressing them now. Um
3: in relationship, for example, to the White Queen, there's a lot of media disproportionate focus on celebrity or that seems to whip up um, out of proportion some of these people within the system.
2: There always has been. I mean, celebrity journalism is, is as old as journalism. Um, what's happened in the last 30 years is that backed by enormous amounts of money for various different causes the notion has got about that that small-l liberal professional balanced journalism is the expression of only one political view and that there's another political view which is i don't know it can be the IPA it can be my friend Jared Henderson it can be it can be um, a number of boutique and extreme views, whether it's about uh, you know for, for a variety of causes and on one level, this has worked to bring a great deal of doubt about the work of professional journalists um, and and this is this is this is this is an argument that comes out of a world where essentially um, Big commercial causes are being fought through the, through the public press. I mean, it's about. I mean, we're all we can all remember the and I and I canvassed them in the essay. The hideous arguments that were promoted by the IPA and by by Morgan and and others against Aboriginal land rights. I mean, Hugh Morgan was going around Australia. Talking about Aborigines as cannibals, he was talking about the Christian mission of mining. He was talking about he was talking about baby eating of Aborigines. He was it was I mean to to be re researching it as I was recently. I mean it is just disgusting, disgusting. And we took it seriously for mm. years, and the black arm shit, uh, black band stuff was. Part of the bullshit of that, it was all, that was part of that bullshit. And it was hideous, it was racist, and it was deeply commercial. And it was all about attacking the professionalism of the mainstream press. And that, on one hand, has worked. But as you know, part of that attack, part of that war, was a ceaseless warfare on the ABC. Because these people want, above all, secure spots on the ABC for themselves to preach their messages, they don't get them. And they whinge. There was a fabulous thing the other day. Did you see Q&A where somebody was doing the usual, oh, there are no conservative, um, there are no conservative commentators around on the ABC? And somebody said, what about Amanda Vanstone? And the Deputy Prime Minister says, she's not a conservative. Well, how fussy can you be? (laughs) She was a liberal minister. What do you want? Mm. But despite those attacks, survey after survey every year says that Australians rate the ABC as amongst the institutions they most trust in this country. It comes usually second or third after the High Court. It's the High Court, the Reserve Bank, and the ABC. And they flip around a bit, but they're the three. So that attack hasn't worked. And the ABC is seen as the most reliable source of news in this country by a million miles. Sorry, Ranald, but Fairfax comes way down the list. And and so this attack on the media is terribly, terribly important. It's not new, but it's brilliantly executed and there's a huge amount of money behind it and Fox News in America was the apotheosis of it. Um, and uh, and um, I'll stop there.
1: Because the, 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 the I can me- go
2: on for three the, hours. The
1: media, the, the one thing I would add is that the media are not to blame at all for the quality of political candidates... <laughs> huh, that we have in this country, that, that both the the major parties keep putting up these clones, these uh, there's no representative nature anymore of what Australia is. Media's got nothing to do with that. I think the, the demise of political culture, they have to own it, and the media is a kind of separate thing in a way. It's a separate sort of... Disappointment that now really... But we
2: are also, we're a better country than America. We are a better country than Britain. We will get through this better than they are getting through it. We will. <laughs> we will.
3: David, uh, first of all, about the ABC, funnily enough, I've been hitting the friends uh, trying to get more money and... Preserve the ABC. So yep. uh, Fairfax is a difficult situation, and you and I know. Uh, mm. I'd love to just uh, indulge in that. But but but, coming from uh, the north, can you tell us Victorians how uh, Howard, you
2: little people,
3: yeah, yes. uh, how how Howard dealt or didn't deal
2: with Pauline Hanson? What happened? Why? Howard was disgusting. He didn't face her. He moved the. He moved the. He moved the government into her territory. Um, he made her he made her in a sense irrelevant. I mean it was it's possible to say in a completely detached sense that his operation against Pauline Hansen was one of the most brilliant things he did. I mean, John Howard is the most professional politician any of us will see in our lifetime. Um, ruthlessly, coolly, clinically professional. And what he did with Pauline Hanson was not confront her, famously not confront her, um, and move the government into her territory. In her maiden speech, Pauline Hanson said something about, if I can choose who to invite into my house, I can choose who comes to this country. Mm. And three years later, or I'm sorry, five years later, that was, we choose who comes to this country in the manner in which they come. Um, and he moved, he moved, he, uh, he slashed funding to a number of Aboriginal organisations, he tightened up, uh, he tightened up um, immigration regulations, he toughened up citizenship. Um, he, he, he moved into her territory. He didn't do what she wanted, because that's the thing about impossible parties. One Nation is an impossible party. They can't have what they really want. And that's why they feel, of course, that they're overlooked. In fact, their wishes are amongst the most carefully scrutinised of any group in the community. But they can't have some things. They can't, we can't stop immigration. We don't want to stop immigration. Um, we can't sort immigration by religion. We can't sort immigration by race. We can't do the things they want. And so it's a world of consolation prizes. And what Howard did was very generously give consolation prizes to that end of the, commun- of the political spectrum... He brought back to Canberra retail race politics, which had not been there since, um, since the fall of One Nation. Uh, I'm sorry, one, uh, the fall of White Australia. When White Australia... The demolition of White Australia was a historically difficult political operation. And even though in the late 1960s there was a majority of Australians who wanted to see it gone... Getting rid of it was a very difficult operation. And it began with Holt, of course, and it began, and then it moved through Whitlam, and it was brought triumphantly to its conclusion by Fraser. But it was very, very difficult. And there was an understanding in Canberra that the cohort of Australians who remained resolutely hostile to the end of one nation would not be exploited Australian. for political gain... And that lasted with a couple of little breaks, but that lasted from the middle of the 1970s until Howard came to power and then it was over and it's been over ever since.
0: Um, I I was very interested in your mentioning of both Bob Brown and uh, Pauline Hanson. uh, That was her. Oh, Sally, that was you. But uh, one thing that ma- immediately made me think of is in both cases the executive attempted to um, Oh closer, sorry. The executive attempted to shut these people down by using criminal sanctions. Both of them were threatened with uh, and in fact went to jail. So um Bob Brown.
1: Yeah, it did it. he oh, yeah. been a few days over the Franklin? Yeah, over he? the Franklin yeah.
0: down in Tasmania. Mm. And I can't think of too many other political examples where the executive tried to intervene. So my question is, isn't it more important for us to consider that our political system needs to accommodate these extreme views and try to incorporate them into the political discussion rather than trying to shut down debate with uh, measures that don't even uh, address the debate? Debate is everything. But how do we achieve that debate? Because at the minute we're trying to shut it down with political correctness, which uh, What do you mean
2: by political correctness? I mean,
0: I'm not allowed to have an opinion that is different to the mainstream, because I'll be shut down by someone saying that although I can argue that opinion, and I can argue it logically, it doesn't fit in with the opinion I should have. Who is stopping you? Well, that's a good question, but... uh,
2: Well, it's a a very important question. You say somebody's stopping you. Can you tell me who's stopping you? Okay, so
0: say, I'll put put an argument. So say that uh, Sally said tonight, for example, that uh, there are better examples of multicultural societies around the world. Yeah. So I'd like to know where they are, number one, an example of somewhere that's better than Australia, because I think Australia has actually... Canada Canada is one.
1: Israel is another...
0: I'm, I'm not sure that the people on the left bank would agree with the Israel example. I don't think but, you know. I'm, but, you, you're um, asking about, t- about I'm people sure from different would agree with that, but
1: cultures in
0: one place? No, but irrespective no, but of that, back to, think, yeah, back to the point. Yeah, back to the point. There's this no, great notion no, that the are people to shut example. us down. Who? I'm trying to give an example. So, yeah. Say that I express an opinion that we have been fairly accommodating to people in this country. We've been fairly accepting of people that came from Europe originally, that came from Asia. Although there were initial problems, we have been fairly accommodating. They are living fairly productive and successful lives in our country, which I think is something to be proud of in Australia. But what I would say differentiates them from, say, uh, the current issues with uh, the Muslim debate is that is it possible that people in who have Muslim ideals are prepared to live life in what is uh, accepting of I'm really I'm really embarrassed to say this Australian values because I think the success of the others were that they were prepared to accept the values that we have here, and what I'd say okay. about the issue with the Muslim? We're going you're gonna have to debate. be really
1: quick because it's okay. got to be a I'll question be really now. Yeah. Okay.
0: and it's I think we can questions. agree you've had a good go. I've had a really good go, uh, and I don't really yeah. care about my opinions. So, it's well, no, no, I've because, because
1: go. one go. part of this is saying that you're not entitled to one.
0: Yeah, so I am exactly. being. I don't. So I'd say, what worries me, and I'm pretty open-minded and accepting, is: are the people who are Muslim prepared to accept our values or? It's the fact that they're going to make their wives walk around? Okay, we're going to.
1: Okay, I think we've got we've got got a whole heap to go with in that. Thank you. Can I, because you've given so much? Can, if you don't mind, I'm going to hone in. Of course, you are. There's nobody? Who's stopping you? Who's stopping you?
2: There's nobody. Well, oh well, don't be a wimp. For Christ's sake, don't be a wimp.
1: I want to pick up on one point in that, uh, which is this idea of the mainstream, and this, what I would say is the fallacy of the mainstream, and you pick up on it in this essay as well. Well, the mainstream... It's not numbers, is it? No, it's not numbers. It's people who feel like yourself. The
2: mainstream, I mean, George Pell is one of the... I mean, my friend George, who's in a bit of problems at the moment, and I'm... Dying to see Jared Henderson's column tomorrow defending him because he's in a. I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, but Jared can do it. I know Jared can do it, and I don't quite know how he's going to do Jared's it. He's going, going to do to, it. He's going to be beside himself. He's, look, David. he's been beside himself for, week, for should, a week. Should we give a bit of a
1: shout out to
2: him now? For Jared. Look, Hello, Jared. Jared. No, but, but he will have filed already. But he's got a problem. But but Pell, for instance, and there are other church leaders, and I've written a lot about this, who talk about who talk about minorities and majorities and the mainstream. And they talk about things that they think are deplorable and they talk about minority interests. And they, still, they are still declaring things like equal marriage, um, euthanasia, um, uh, adoption by, by gay couples, etc., etc. They're still calling them minorities, being forced on the majority. Read the numbers. They're not. They're majority views of a decent society. So the mainstream is this peculiar thing. The mainstream is wonderful, but of course the mainstream press is terrible. So the main, mainstream is, a, you know, goes back and forth. No one is stopping you having that opinion. You live in a free country. Just man up and voice it, as you did tonight. No one is stopping you. No one is stopping Bill Leak publishing those hideous cartoons. In fact, he was paid a wage to do it. And he had all of the resources of News Limited to defend him against his critics. Uh, While at the same time, News Limited was saying, oh, poor man, a martyr for free speech, etc., etc. But just man up and say it. As for sending Pauline Hanson to jail, I've got a bit of sympathy for the jury. Let me go through the facts. To get public funding in Queensland for an election, you have to have 500 members of a party. Pauline Hanson went down to the Queensland Electoral Commissioner with a list of a 1,000 names which she knew none of which, none of which were members of her party. And she said, they're members of my party. And those people thought they were members of her party. But One Nation was cunningly constructed so that it only had three members, her, David Thingo and David Thingo. There were three of them. There weren't 500, there were three. And as a result of that representation to the the Queensland Electoral Commissioner, she got half a million dollars in public funding. Then she made the mistake of not paying the expenses of one of her candidates, who set about trying to sue the party for his expenses. And discovered, to his surprise, even though he had a piece of paper saying, you are member 583, that he wasn't a member of One Nation at all. And that it was a sham. He was a member of something else called the Pauline Hansen Support Group. And he made sure they were prosecuted. Tony Abbott backed him in the prosecution and said, we'll, ba- we'll make sure your expenses are paid. Um, which he lied about, of course, afterwards, but but then he admitted that that's what he'd done. And she went to jail for fraud. And, you know, I've got a bit of sympathy for the jury. But on the other hand, I've got a deep regard for the Queensland Court of Appeal, which found that a contract had been established between the people who thought they were members and the party. And all they had to do was to hire a barrister and go to court and they could, in fact, enforce their rights to be a member of One Nation and, therefore, she should come
1: out of jail. On that note, we have to wrap up this. (laughs) I hate... Look, Sally, I hate to be bitter to end.
2: I hate to be bitter to end. It's not possible. No. Um, Look, can I just say... Pauline Hanson is us. She's absolutely us. She, remember, she represents a part of Australia. She's part of Australian politics. She's not... She's And, and she, we need to address her. We need to understand her as part of this country. That's the purpose of my essay.
0: David Marr and Sally Warhaft in conversation there at Montalto Vineyard and Olive Grove for The Fifth Estate. Thanks for listening. You'll find a handful of other recordings of David and literally dozens more conversations hosted by Sally at wheelercentre.com. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care.